0: Hello, spooky friends. Thank you for being brave enough to come back. This is your hostess, Blair Bathory, and I'm here to bring you the scariest stories the world has to offer. Thankfully, we don't have to wait until Halloween to enjoy our favorite things. Now that it's August, I'm officially declaring it the start of spooky season. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. They say that soulmates are one soul that is split into two different bodies. When you have that kind of deep connection with someone, it can feel all-encompassing. But if only one person feels that way and the feelings are not reciprocated, it can become an obsession. And obsessions can haunt you and sometimes can cause you harm. First, playground horror, followed by troubling texts. Then, wrong place, deadly time. Finally, in our featured story, The Cursed Temple of Destruction. I receive hundreds of creepy story submissions every single week, and of those, the scariest ones make it into our podcast along with the story that we've chosen to animate and post over at youtube.com snarled. If you have a tale you're dying to share, send me an email at somethingscary at snarled.com if you'd like to support something scary, then consider joining our Patreon. As a patron, not only can you help the show and see ad-free episodes, but you can also be a part of the horror and hear your name featured in one of our podcast or weekly video stories. Visit patreon.com snarled. So, want to hear something scary? Till death do us part. There will always be consequences if you behave poorly, whether it be in this life or after you die, like in this story inspired by Kate. Adrian and Marnie were the best of friends and vowed they would stay that way forever. They grew up on a quiet street with a park walking distance from both their houses. Every day after second grade let out, they would run home from the bus, drop off their belongings, and head to the park. That Friday afternoon was no different. Adrian changed into sneakers and rushed to the park, eager to get there first. But when he arrived, he saw Marnie already on the red swing, surrounded by a handful of junior high girls. He had seen them before and had been warned by his mother to steer clear as they had a bad reputation. As Adrian approached, He could see the tears streaming down Marnie's face. The older girls were relentlessly teasing her. Adrian yelled at them to get away, unafraid of the backlash. The teen who seemed like the ringleader grabbed Marnie by the hair, yanking it back hard. Marnie cried out in pain and Adrian rushed towards her, but two of the other girls grabbed him by the arms and pinned him down, keeping him too far to do anything. The remaining bullies began to kick and punch Marnie, Adrian tried to scream for help, but they covered his mouth. As Marnie tried to run away, the ringleader shoved her, causing her to fall and hit her head on the metal pipe holding the swings up. There was a dreadful clunking sound and then total silence. Marnie fell to the ground, completely still. Suddenly, her father came rushing down the hill, scaring off the teenagers. Adrian ran to her, but it was already too late. The only sound that could be heard over her father's sobs was the red swing, swinging back and forth. Weeks later, the group of girls were given a slap on the wrist. It was chalked up to a tragic accident. An official said that Marnie had fallen, but Adrian knew the truth. Every day after school, he kept the original routine. He'd sit on his swing, often staring at Marnie's as it sat empty. He talked to her, sometimes praying for her to show a sign, begging for the swing to start moving so he could feel her presence, but nothing. And the more time passed, the angrier he got, until one day, while on the swing, he made a promise to Marnie that he'd make things right. Each of the five middle schoolers began to receive ominous messages, some in what looked like a little girl's handwriting stating that they knew what really happened. Others in the form of trinkets, like Marnie's shoe from that day, inside their locker. The final message was an invitation to the ringleader to meet at the park that evening. The five girls scoffed and knew it was Adrian. Something had to be done. So after school, they met at the park intending to finish what they had started. When they arrived at the top of the hill, they looked down to see Adrian standing on the climbing frame. With glee, they headed down the hill. As they crossed the threshold to the playground, their feet were squelching in the dampened mulch. They looked up to see Adrian holding a flare gun. They stopped in their tracks, confused. Then they noticed the odor, the wooden mulch that covered almost the entire playground was soaked in something, gasoline. Before the girls could react, Adrian pulled the trigger, aiming at the ringleader's feet. The flames quickly spread to all of the girls. They screamed in agony, running to each other helplessly or trying to flee, but every step they took just spread the flames faster and farther. Adrian jumped off the castle and ran toward the swings, the only place he hadn't poured accelerant. As he watched the bullies go up in flames, one by one, their burnt corpses hitting the ground, He began to swing and chat with Marnie as if she were there. Her swing began to move, just a little. Then it looked as if it was holding someone's weight. Adrian closed his eyes, praying, and then when he opened them, there she was, swinging alongside him. He could hear her and feel her. They held hands and kept swinging until the fire department came. The paramedics took Adrian away to make sure he was okay. As he was getting into the ambulance, he told Marnie he'd be back the next day. The first responders thought he might have been hallucinating from the fumes, but when they looked back, they saw one red swing still moving, awaiting her best friend's return. Have you ever missed someone who has passed on so much you believe you see them and could possibly communicate? How would you know if it's real or not? Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I Sometimes, no matter how hard we try, what we think we are seeing has no possible explanation, like in this creepypasta-inspired story written by Janine Pipe. Denisha stared at her phone, her brow furrowed, For the last 10 minutes or so, her boyfriend Ravi kept sending her the oddest messages. She was close to blocking his number. At first, she thought he was playing a joke on her. The first text had simply read, Don't open the door. Denisha had presumed he was being silly and was hidden in the garden or something. He knew her parents were out for the evening. He also knew she was grounded for failing a test and he wasn't allowed to visit. She replied, Okay, babe, I'll try to ignore the hundreds of visitors, lol. His next text was kind of strange, even for Ravi. Please, don't open the door, especially if it's me. What on earth could that mean? You better not try. You know we got that doorbell app, so my parents will see you and be so mad. It seemed to take ages for those three little dots to reappear, alerting her to Ravi typing his reply. I can't explain, but if you come to the door, don't open it because, well, because it isn't me. Okay, now this was officially getting weird and she had homework to be getting on with. She hit the call button, intending to tell him to stop messing about, but wouldn't go through, which was so strange too. Why could he text, but not call? I need to study, Ravi. I'm not in the mood for your jokes. Denisha carried on with her studying, her eyes drifting to the phone screen every couple of minutes. Of course, maybe for once he was actually doing as she'd ask and was leaving her alone, but that wasn't like him. After half an hour, she opened the message thread up again and was satisfied to see the three dots and finally a new message. He's coming. He'll be there soon. Do not open the door. Followed by, no matter what he looks like, it's not me. Denisha was about to give him a piece of her mind when the doorbell rang. She looked at the app on her phone and sure enough, Ravi was standing on the porch, wearing the same football shirt he'd had on at school. He couldn't believe it. He knew the app was on her parents' phone too. She was about to march down the stairs and tell him off when she stopped on the landing and peered out at the porch below. She could see him staring intently at the door, hands in his pockets. She decided to send a text. This is such a stupid joke. Why are you here? You're going to get me in so much trouble. Her reply came back immediately. No, it's not me. Don't open the door. Run to her closet and call 911. Now! This was getting to be too much. If she called 911 and Officer Dawson came, he'd be sure to tell her father, and she'd be in even more trouble for wasting the policeman's time. Something was bothering her too. Not just how annoying Ravi was being and how she was going to convince her folks this was not her idea. There was something else nagging in the back of her mind. The doorbell rang again, and this time she'd had enough. She'd open the door, tell Ravi he had to leave and that she was blocking him for the rest of the evening so she could get on with her studies. She'd just have to tell her parents the truth and hopefully they'd be happy she was honest with them and made the right choice. She looked again at her phone and she saw the dots, but feeling annoyed, she put the phone in her pocket and stomped down the stairs. She flung the door open and stared at her boyfriend and was just about to give him a good telling off when he thrust the knife into her stomach. over and over. As Denisha fell to the ground, holding her hands uselessly over the gaping wound, it finally clicked into place. As she stood watching him out of the window, as she saw the text appear warning her, the Ravi at the door wasn't typing. He wasn't even holding a phone. She didn't have the strength to pull hers out of her pocket before she bled to death on the doorstep. But later, when the police checked it, they found some final messages from Ravi. Dan, please reply. Did you call the cops? Dan? Denisha Reply! Dan, oh God, he's there, I'm so, I'm so sorry. It isn't me, I don't know what he is. So sorry, Dan, I... The doorbell app footage clearly showed Ravi as the attacker. However, the police were unable to locate him or track his phone. They were also unable to explain how he was seemingly able to send timestamp text messages despite the camera evidence to be the contrary. Of course, the police didn't know about the doppelganger, would have never believed its existence could be possible. Maybe next time you swear you saw a friend and they promised they were somewhere else, they might just be telling the truth. Have you ever received an odd text that you just didn't feel right about? Did you believe it? Or did you think it was a prank? What would you do if you saw someone at your door that you know shouldn't be there? When you don't trust your instincts, you can get caught in deadly crossfire. Like in this story inspired by Harley. Camilla knew how to be invisible. She had achieved the status through most of high school, barely saying a word, keeping to her writing and eating in the library for lunch. She had purposefully avoided extracurricular activities and dances for three years and felt no regret about it. But when it was time for homecoming in her senior year, her mother had one request. She begged Camilla to go to just one dance, even if it was only for an hour. Her mother said that even to experience the atmosphere, the setting could give Camilla something to write about. She herself had been quite the socialite, one of the popular kids and the life and soul of the party. She didn't want her daughter to miss this rite of passage. So Camilla acquiesced, but only for the allotted 60 minutes. The night came and while she missed the dinners that all the other kids were attending beforehand, she was there as promised. She attended to scope the layout, to people watch, and then head straight home. As everyone funneled onto the dance floor, Camilla stayed leaning against the wall, checking the time on her phone. That wasn't until Omar Miller approached. Camilla and Omar had known each other since kindergarten and had several classes together, but she had barely said two words to him in all those intervening years. Yet, out of nowhere, he asked her to dance. Alarm bells rang this was so cliche, straight out of a scene from every horror movie ever made. She expected a gang of popular girls to jump out and attack her at any moment. And so she declined. He sensed her incredulity and tried to remedy the situation. He said his date Ella had stood him up. This was completely believable because even Camilla knew that Ella and Omar had been on and off again for the last two years. She herself had witnessed their arguments in the hallways. The relationship was clearly toxic and Ella seemed continually jealous of any other female speaking to him. Omar promised he would be a gentleman and that no one was there to harm Camilla, promising her Ella hadn't even attended the dance. Seeing as they were the only two single people, she decided to give it a chance. It would be another experience she could use in her writing and there was only 10 minutes left until she completed her mother's one hour request. As they danced, Omar chatted away, asking questions. People watching whispered, but were more caught up in themselves to worry about the new dance partners. Camilla told him about her mother's request and said she would be leaving shortly. Omar, not wanting to be left alone, offered to drive her home. After a couple of not unpleasant dances, Camilla felt comfortable enough to say yes. So they headed to the parking lot and got into Omar's car. As they were choosing which station to listen to and laughing about each other's taste in music, a sudden crash slammed into the windshield. Omar and Camilla screamed. The pickaxe was now being pulled out of the glass. Camilla screamed for Omar to drive. He fumbled to put the car in reverse. And just as he was about to hit the gas, The axe drove straight through the driver's window and into Omar's skull. Camilla screamed as the blood splattered across her face. She opened her door and crawled out. She looked up and saw Ella attempting to yank the weapon from Omar's head. Ella's eyes, already black with rage, grew darker at the sight of Camilla. You? Of all the people he chose, you? Camilla denied any wrongdoing, but before she could prove anything, Ella had taken the pickaxe and thrown it straight at Camilla. It missed, hitting the ground just inches from her. Camilla grabbed it and tried to throw it away from her, but she wasn't quick enough, and Ella shoved her directly onto the blade. (laughs) Camilla gasped in shock and pain, then rolled over onto her back, the pick sticking out of her chest. She struggled to breathe. Ella pulled out the weapon, blood dripping down onto the injured girl. She hovered over Camilla and said, you should have stayed invisible. As she walked away triumphantly, leaving behind her the bodies of her ex-boyfriend and the girl who had come to the dance only to please her mother, there was a buzzing sound from a text alert. It was Camilla's mom. The message read, hope you're having fun. Can't wait to hear about everything later. So proud of you. Love, Mom. XOXO. XO. Have you ever witnessed a relationship so toxic you knew it was destined to fail? Did it seem like one or more of those people were possessed by something evil? In our final story, join my co-host, Stephanie, as she tells the story of two young lovers who travel to Bali for adventure, only to be haunted by an ancient curse. You can also find that story animated over at youtube.com snarled.
1: There are all sorts of reasons relationships don't work out, and people suffer from heartbreak. But how can you live with yourself when you know you're the one who has caused all the pain and suffering? Nara and Eli had been dating for only a few months when they decided to go on a last minute vacation to the romantic island of Bali. What better place to celebrate their love while taking in the stunning views and enjoying a slice of paradise? When Nara posted a picture on social media of herself and Eli on the plane, her phone immediately lit up. She groaned as she answered her sister's call. Her sister warned that Nara should not be going to Bali with her boyfriend. Nara brushed off as jealousy, her overprotective sibling attempting to protect her from getting too serious too quickly. Her sister was in the middle of warning her about the curse of the temple of… when the flight attendant asked Nara to get off the phone, and she hung up. When they landed in Bali, Nara wasn't filled with excitement she was expecting. She was furious at her sister for trying to cast negativity on their vacation. Hoping to forget about the call, Eli asked at the check-in if there were any local legends they should be aware of. The greeter nodded and told the story of a prince and a princess from the Brahman caste, the highest in the Hindu order, visiting from the neighboring island of Java. While watching a romantic sunset at the famous Lot Temple, the unmarried couple became intimate. Sadly, once their visit was over, the prince refused to marry the princess. Devastated and filled with heartache, she placed a curse on all unmarried couples visiting the Tenalot Temple. It is said that their true love will be forever doomed. Eli started to laugh as this happened many years ago and was just a silly story. But one look at Nara's frown stopped him. During the first few days on the island, Nara found it difficult to enjoy herself. Eli begged her to forget about the call as they headed to camp for the night at the temple. It was a stunningly beautiful rock formation where the waves crash at the foot of the temple. But the place was practically empty. The lack of noise and visitors gave it an eerie feeling. Nara and Eli barely spoke as they set up their camp that night. The harsh sound of the water bashing against the rocks coupled with the creepy atmosphere kept Nara awake. Eli also tossed and turned restless in his slumber. Suddenly he cried out. Waking from a terrible nightmare, he accused Nara of cheating on him. She scoffed and told him how absurd that was, but to him, it felt so real. Nara burst into tears. This is not how she envisioned their perfect romantic going. Feeling resentful, she stormed off towards the water. Then she heard a whisper from behind her. I hate you. She quickly turned around and rushed back towards Eli. How could he just say something so hurtful? Eli protested, claiming he hadn't said anything. Maybe she was hearing things, just like he was dreaming things. Eli reached over to Nara, and when he attempted to put his arm around her, she pushed him away and he stumbled, cracking his skull open on a rock as he hit the ground. His twitching body bounced down into the water. Nara cried out in shock, but when she tried to get to him, something stopped her. An unseen force was keeping her body from moving. Then she heard the whispering voice again. He deserved it. They always do. Instead of rushing for help, Nira found herself heading back to the camp. She slept soundly. The following morning, she called the local authorities, pretending to discover Eli was missing. The authorities ruled his death as a tragic accident and chalked it up to tourists who were at the wrong place at the wrong time. But Nara and her sister knew the truth. It was the curse of Bali. The princess ensuring no unmarried couples ever felt happiness again after visiting the temple. But despite her grief, the one question that continually ran through Nara's mind was, would the curse have affected them if her sister hadn't mentioned it? Or would the ghost of the princess have been waiting for them anyway?
0: This week's podcast stories were edited by Sarah Lukasiewicz, Janine Pipe, and Stephanie Strange. Narration by Blair Bathory and Stephanie Strange. Audio edited and mixed by Fitz Harris. Additional audio editing by Calvin Linderman. Art and graphics by Irma Richardson. Produced by Anna Villalobos. Executive produced by Gail Gilman. Music by Sapphire Sindalo and Calvin Linderman.